It's Eric Topol here with uh, Ground Truce, and what a delight for me to uh, welcome Chris Vantelikin, who has written a masterpiece. It's called Ultra Processed People, and it's actually much more beyond ultra processed food, as I learned. Uh, we're going to get into how it covers things like exercise, nutrition in general, um, all sorts of things. Uh, welcome, Chris. It's such a pleasure to be here. And well, there's no have, one there's no one I would rather say that about my book than you. So that means a huge amount. Well, I uh, was kind of blown away by it, I have to tell you, and it's probably going to affect my uh, eating behavior and other things, as we'll discuss for years to come. You're going to be stuck in my head. <laughs> um, so what's interesting, before we get into the thick of it, your background, I mean, as a molecular virologist turned into... Uh, a, a person that devoted so much to food science. Uh, and you go through that in the book, how you um, basically got into rigorous reviews of, of papers and demand for you know high quality science. And then somehow you migrated into this area. Maybe you could just give us a little bit of background on that. So I suppose it feels a tenuous thing. I'm an infectious diseases clinician the only people who get infections are disadvantaged people for the most part, you know, ri rich people, well-off people get cardiometabolic disease. Um, and so I worked a lot in very low income settings in South Asia, in Pakistan, uh, in the hills and in central and West Africa. And the leading cause of death in the kids I was seeing uh, in the infants was the marketing of food companies. So food, particularly formula, but also baby food was being made up with filthy water. And so these these children were getting this triple jeopardy where they were having uh, bugs. They were ingesting bugs from filthy water. Their parents were becoming poor because they couldn't afford the food and um, they lacked the immune system of breast milk in the very young. And so um, it, it sort of presented itself, although I was treating infections, that the root of the problem was the food companies. And now my work has sort of expanded to understanding that um, uh, you know, poor diet has overtaken tobacco as the, or it's depending on the, the number set you look at, but the date Lancet global health, uh, data shows that poor diets overtaken tobacco as the leading cause of early death, uh, globally. And so we need to start thinking about this problem in terms of the companies that cause it. So that's how I still treat patients with infections, but that was my, that was my route into being interested in, in the, what we call the commercial determinants of health. Yeah, well, you've really done it. You know, I have 15 pages of highlights and notes that I got from the book. And uh, I mean, wow. But, you know, I guess the summary statement that somebody said to you during the course of the book, because you researched it heavily, not just through articles, but talking to experts, um, that ultra processed food, food, foods is not food. It's an industrial produced edible substance. And you really, it gets graphic with, uh, you know, the bacteria uh, uh, that's a slime and xanthan gum. And I mean, all this stuff. I mean, I mean, everywhere I look, I see maltodextrin and I mean, all these, huh, I mean, just amazing stuff. So before we get into the nitty gritty of some of these um, additives and, and uh, synthetic crap, um, you did an experiment. Uh, and with uh, the great University College of London, where you took, I guess, 80% of your diet for a month of UPFs. Uh, 
So can you tell us about that experiment, what, what it did for you, what you learned from it? Yeah, so it, it wasn't just a stunt for the book. It was, I was the first patient in a big study that I'm now running. It's a clinical trial of ultra-processed food. And so I was a way of gathering data. So it was, I, was, you, you, I mean, you know how these things work, Eric. I was, I was teaming up with my neuroscience colleagues to do MRI scans, my better metabolic colleagues, instead of going, look, if we put patients on this diet, how would it all look? And what, what should we be investigating? If we do MRI scans, will we see anything? And so I ate various uh, news outlets have portrayed this as kind of me heroically putting my body on the line for science. I ate a completely normal diet for many American adults. About one in five Americans eats the diet of 80% of their calories. It's a very typical diet for a British or an American teenager or young person. Um, so it wasn't arduous. And I was really looking forward to this diet because, you know, like most 45-year-old doctors, I have started because of my marriage and my children, you start to eat in a rather healthy way. And this was this amazing opportunity to go back to eating the garbage that I'd eaten as a teenager. You know, I was going back to these foods I loved. So um, I guess there were kind of four things that happened. There were these three physical effects on my body. I gained a huge amount of weight and I wasn't force feeding myself. And that was that really chimes with the epidemiological data that we have and from the clinical trial data run by Kevin Hall at the NIH, that this is food that gets around your body's evolved mechanisms that say, stop eating, you're full now. Uh, the second thing that happened is we, we did some brain scans and I thought, well, the brain scan, we're not going to see anything in a month of normal food. So I switched from about 20% to 80% and we saw enormous changes in connectivity between the habit automatic behavior bits at the back in the cerebellum and the reward addiction bits in in the middle in the in the in the limbic system and associated regions so that was very significant in me and we did follow up scans and those changes were robust and we really have no idea what that what is happening in children who are eating this stuff from birth to their brains but it's concerning and then the kind of the most intriguing thing was i ate a standard meal at the beginning of the diet and we we measured my hormonal response to the food. And I think people are more and more familiar with some of these hormones because we've got drugs like semaglutide or Wegovy or Zempic that are interrupting these, um, uh, these fullness or these hunger hormone pathways. And what we saw was that my hunger hormone response to a standard meal, uh, my hunger hormones remain sky high at the end of the diet. So this is food that is fiddling with your bo body's ability to say, I am done. But kind of the most amazing thing was that th this experience I had where the food became disgusting. There was like this moment talking to a friend in Brazil called Fernanda Rauber. She's an incredible scientist. And she was the one who said, it's not food, Chris. It's an industrially produced edible substance. And I sat down that night to eat, uh, I think it was a meal of fried chicken. And I was reading the ingredients like so I could barely finish it. And so the invitation in my book is please keep eating this food. Read your ingredients lists and ask yourself, why are you eating maltodextrin? What is it? What, why are you eating xanthan gum? What is um, diacetyl tartaric acid esters of mono and diglycerides of fatty acids? Why is that in your bread? Yeah, well, and then the other thing that the experiment brought out was the inflammatory response with the high sieve reactive protein, fivefold leptin, uh, so, I mean, it really was uh, extraordinary. Now, the other thing that was fascinating is you have an identical twin. Mm. Um, his name is, is it Exand? Z Zand, like Alexander. Oh, Zand. Just ah, the middle okay. His full name is Alexander. 
Ah, so spelled XN, but Zond. Okay, so he's an identical twin, and he's up to 20 kilos heavier than you. So this helped you, along with all the other research that you did in citations, to understand the balance between genetics and environment with respect to how you gain weight. Is that right? That's right. So I have all the genetic risk factors for weight gain. And I know this because I've, I've done studies with colleagues at the MRC unit at Cambridge, and I have all the polymorphisms, the little minor genetic changes that are very common. I have them all associated with weight. Now, you can see I'm sitting here at the high end of healthy weight. You know, I'm, 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 not, I'm not thin, but I'm, I'm, I'm not technical. I'm just below overweight. Um, and what protects me is my environment. And by that, we mean my education, the amount of money I have. I have very little stress in my life. I have a, a supportive family. I have enough time to cook meals. I have a fridge. I have cutting boards. I have skills that I can do all that with. Um, when my twin with this set of genetic risk factors moved to the States, he went to do a master's degree in Boston and he had a, 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 a son in an unplanned way. Who's, uh, Julian is a much beloved member of the family, but it was very stressful, uh, what now, 13 years ago. And um, Zond kind of ate, ate his problems, but the problems that he ate were ultra processed food. Mm -hmm. So ultra processed food is a, it's one of the ways in which the harms of poverty are expressed. So we know that people who live in stress and and, and po being poor is, is a significant source of stress. So it, it's, it's disadvantaged people generally smoke more, they drink more alcohol, they use gambling apps uh, and they eat terrible food. And that is because of the environment they're in. It has nothing to do with their willpower or their choices. So part of the book is trying to reveal really that for many people, the food environment, the food that's available and they can afford, is extremely violent to their bodies. And generally, that's the environment of, of people who are already living with disadvantage. Well, you know, the data, which I wasn't fully familiar with, I have to say that you reviewed in the book. And then you may have seen in the British Medical Journal, there was a very good uh, paper on ultra processed food just published recently. Uh, I'm sure you know these folks. And not only does it review the point you made that 60% of the American diet and the UK diet is from ultra processed food, but that the uh, all the analyses show 40% higher risk of type 2 diabetes, 35% risk of cardiovascular event increase, uh, increased hypertension, 29% risk of all-cause mortality, 41% risk of abdominal obesity, uh, metabolic syndrome, 81% higher risk. This isn't even yours, this is the review of all the literature, uh, cardiovascular mortality, 50% higher risk. You mentioned the death from high UPF diet, 22% of all deaths. I mean, you know, this is big. I mean, this is something I didn't realize. I knew it wasn't good, but I didn't realize the toll it was taking on the species. I mean, it's, it's remarkable. It It is, in a sense, it's not enormously surprising. So the the thing I think that is confusing a lot of people, uh, there are two sort of sources of confusion. One is that the working definition that we all use is basically, if something has an additive you don't find in a typical home kitchen, then it's an ultra processed food. Now that has led a lot of people to go, well, the problem is the additives. Now, some of the additives, we think there's very good evidence they are causing harm. So the non-nutritive sweeteners, 
We had a huge paper come out and sell this summer. It's not referenced in the book, but the World Health Organization have written a position, and you may well know this literature better than me, but there's, there's a growing concern that these products are definitely not better than sugar, um, and they may predispose to metabolic disease and microbiome effects. The emulsifiers, again, we've got pretty good evidence that many of the synthetic emulsifiers, and they are in everything. They're in your soda, your toothpaste, your bread, your mayonnaise. The emulsifiers are ubiquitous because they give a slimy mouthfeel that, that people like. So some of the additives are an issue, but the additives are just a proxy for food that is made with no regard for your health. And so a lot of the research I'm doing now is with economists. And so we're going to publish a, a paper in the next couple of months where one of the questions we've asked is when it comes to the big transnational food corporations, is there good evidence within the corporations they care about human health? Because the, the companies that make this food say, we practice stakeholder capitalism. We care about the environment. We care about our farmers. We care about kids, people, our customers. We care about your health. What we can show is that the way the companies spend their money is not to reinvest in those people, those stakeholders. They use it to buy shares back. So every quarter they do share buybacks to drive up equity value. We can show that when public health proposals reach the board or reach investors, institutional investors always vote down those public health proposals. And we have really good examples at Unilever, Pepsi and Danone where CEOs have said, we want to make the food healthier. And activist investors have fired those, uh, fired the CEOs or fired the boards. So the companies are making the food with the purpose of generating money for institutional investors, usually pension funds. And so to me, it's not very surprising if if you put yourself in the position of being a scientist at one of these companies or being a CEO and the market's saturated, we've all got enough food. You have to make food using the cheapest possible ingredients with the longest shelf life, and it has to be addictive or quasi-addictive. That's the only way you can get us to buy more and more of it. And now that the States and the UK, Australia, we're saturated, they're starting to move very aggressively into South and Central America. I mean, they've, they've largely done that. But now the focus is on West Africa, South Asia, East Asia, and, and Central Africa. So yeah, this is it, you know, the purpose of the food, we call this system financialization. All the incentives in the system are, 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 are financial. And so it's not surprising the food isn't very good for us. Yeah. And, you know, one thing I did like is that you did get into the companies uh, involved here. And you also noted uh, many times throughout the book about these scientists that said they didn't have any conflict. And then turned out they had quite a, a lot of conflicts. And so, you know, one of the things I thought about while you mentioned about the transnational trans fats, trans fats mm. were basically outlawed. And why can't we get, I think you, you touched on this in the chapter right before the end about, you know, we're just not going to be able to get these companies uh, to change their ways. But why can't we get uh, these UPS, particularly the ones that are most injurious? And by the way, you've proven that for three, not just the epidemiologic studies, which many people will argue diet uh, logs are not, you know, so perfect, even though when it's in tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people, you you mentioned, I wouldn't go back to the Kevin Hall experiments because he's really a noted researcher here in the U.S. at NIH. And also the biologic plausibility, which, you know, you've shown in spades throughout the book. But so with all this proof, why can't there be um, a path towards 
making these products, the ones that are the most implicated, illegal and like the trans fats. <clears throat> so there are several answers to that. First of all, I guess my approach as an activist and a... So I, I sit in a kind of strange space because on the one hand, I am a scientist and I try and be fairly dispassionate. On the other hand, as you say, we now have very robust data. We've got more than a decade's worth. We've, I mean, Kevin Hall sent a lovely tweet the other day, which I can unpack a bit, but one this, this is an argument, okay, basically between independent scientists and the industry. And the industry are very, very skillful at mounting their arguments. So the argument of industry is, look, ultra-processed food, the definition is woolly, it's not agreed on, these are largely observational studies, we need more randomized trials. Um, you know, the, the real problem with food is it being high-fat salt sugar. And Kevin sent a brilliant tweet where, it, it was in, in Ask Someone Else, where someone was going, look, why can't we just call it high-fat salt sugar? What's processing got to do with anything? And Kevin said, well, look, no one has ever agreed on the definition of high fat salt sugar, whereas the definition of UPF is extremely widely agreed on. And we have now over a thousand studies linking it to negative health outcomes. So in terms of why we can't ban it, I guess my answer is I think it's politically extremely important not to frame it, not to frame things in terms of banning. If we want to see the gains that we got with smoking, my proposal is we need to regulate this food, we need to warn people, but we need to use the language of the political right and of the free market to get people on board. We, I want to increase everyone's choice and freedom. I don't want to take anyone's Cocoa Pops or Soda Pop away. It's fine if people want to buy that, but they should have a warning label on it and they should be able to buy fresh, affordable, healthy food. And what we know is that people like you and I I mean, we might eat, you know, we will eat a bit of ultra processed food, but broadly people with resources don't eat this stuff. It's, it's low income families that are forced to. So partly I don't think we should be making it illegal, but the main reason is there is an enormous power. I mean, this, any one of these companies has the annual marketing budget that is maybe four or five times the entire World Health Organization operating budget each year. Okay, so we're talking 10 billion versus a couple of billion. And that's just for a company like Nestle or Danone or Coke. So the might of these corporations is overwhelming. And so the struggle will be very much as it was with tobacco. And we have to be very careful how we sort of proceed and what we ask for. One of the issues that's going on at the moment is the definition of UPF at the moment is not suitable for legislation. So if we said, well, look, we're going to we're gonna try and put a tax, 10% tax on all UPF, what will happen is the companies will have a lawsuit of every single additive. So they'll go, well, xanthan gum is in kitchens, actually, because we sell it in bags and people with celiac use it to bake at home. So then we have to have an exhausting discussion. So there's a group led by Barry Popkin and a, a number of other brilliant researchers who are creating a definition that it will include I'm going to make this up, uh, non-nutritive sweeteners, emulsifiers, uh, energy density, um, and softness. And that will all, with, we've got loads of randomized trials on all of that, and that will withstand the lawsuits. So <clears throat> it's, it's about the technical approach has to be a very sophisticated one about resisting corporate power. And, and the template has to be tobacco. Yeah, well, I think you gave me a good response to those who would wonder but the warning, as you know very well, far better than me, 
all we have on the foods are the nutrients of protein, carbohydrate, fat, saturated fat. There's nothing about warnings about the uh, the processed, ultra processed uh, content, which has to get fixed at some point. And I it, hope it has that- to. I mean, it is astounding. What's going to happen is there are going to be lawsuits. So people are working on this and it's very hard to bring lawsuits around food. But one angle will be to focus on soda pop. So there should be a warning on all the fizzy pop. It all contains phosphoric acid, which leaches minerals out of your bones. It dissolves your teeth. The sugar rots your teeth. And we will start to find communities that only drink one brand because there is a couple of very dominant brands and they will be able to bring class action lawsuits about dental decay. And that's that's how it will start. But in Argentina, in Chile, Colombia, they now on cans of cola do have big black hexagons. So it, it can be done. And I think the population's in the UK, obesity and diet related diseases reach such a crisis. People are so angry about this. And I think the people, the grassroots sentiment is I am being gaslit by the people who sell my food. You know, they've told me if I eat this, it'll help me lose weight. They've told me it will make me well and it hasn't worked. Yeah, well, that's for sure. Well, now I want to get into a couple of the things that kind of shook up, shakes up the kind of prevailing beliefs, the sacred cows, if you will. Um, One of them is, you know, the burning calories with exercise. You really challenge that whole notion in the book. As I said, the book is not just about ultra processed foods, which completely takes them apart. But you you challenge the idea that, you you know, you can work it off, exercise, burn off these calories. And you have a a pretty substantial uh, part of the book that you, you really get into that. Help us understand, because still today, most people think, well, if I eat that such and such, I'll just exercise, I'll burn off those calories. Um, What's the truth about that? So I wrote the book. I try to lay out the evidence for ultra processed food. But then you have to do some whataboutery because people always go, yeah, but but isn't it because we're all because people who live with excess weight have low willpower. So I try and get rid of that. Or isn't it genetic? I can get rid of that. Um, But a big argument is when it comes to the pandemic of obesity, surely it's because we spend all our lives on our phones, we sit around, we watch TV, and none of us work in heavy manufacturing anymore. So this idea was heavily promoted through a number of institutions, particularly something called the Global Energy Balance Network, and thousands of scientific papers in good, robust, peer-reviewed journals. And some colleagues of mine at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, some public health doctors, did this incredible network analysis where they looked at the links between funding and all of these papers and all of the conferences that said, look, if you drink too much sugar or you eat too much chocolate, you just go for a run, you burn off the calories, energy in, energy out. Like it's simple. The entire network, and I really mean all of the papers, thousands of them were funded by the Coca-Cola Corporation. In and of itself, that doesn't prove that it's a complete myth. But at the same time, since the 1990s, there's been this real puzzling thing about our most sophisticated way of measuring uh, energy expenditure using this technique called double-labeled water. And there was this finding that no one could explain. It kept happening in all the studies, in humans and in animals, that people of the same size and shape and age and sex 
burn the same number of calories, whether they're subsistence farmers in Nigeria or secretarial workers in Chicago, whether they're hunter-gatherers or office workers. Everyone seems to burn the same. It, it, you know, I, 45-year-old men who weigh 85 kilos like me, we can be hunter-gatherers, we can be um, we can be office-based doctors, we burn the same number of calories. And a guy called Herman Ponser pulled this together. And he said, it seems like what is happening is that we have evolved to burn the same number of calories every day. Now, if you go for a run, you have to steal energy from other budgets because you can't violate the laws of physics. So if I burn 3000 calories today and I go for a 200 calorie run, I will take that 200 calories from my inflammation budget, from my anxiety budget, from my reproductive hormone budget. And that is why exercise is good for us. Now, what this doesn't mean is if you're cycling in the Tour de France or you're an elite athlete or you're mountaineering, then you do burn more calories each day. And we, we've known that for a long time. But the kind of exercise that we all do each day, if we go to the gym a couple of times a week, that doesn't seem to affect our calorie expenditure. And the reason that, so, I mean, I'm an MD, PhD. I feel I understand how the body works. I would say the reason I was unaware of that until I started writing the book and trying to figure out the piece of the puzzle I was missing is because of the Coca-Cola Corporation and their incredible network of literature that they funded. Well, it shook me up because I was thinking all these years about, well, if I burned 500 calories. Right. And the other thing I thought about is, you know, like I've had a knee operation replacement and I'm going to be immobilized and I'm going to get fat just because I can't exercise. And, you know, this was fascinating. And I, the, the, you just reviewed it in a nutshell. It's really great for people to read that. Now, another one that you really took apart. So uh, you and I both know Gary Taubes. Mm. And uh, I'm glad that I mean, you had And I want to say I love, I really, you know, I haven't spoken to him since the book, but I, I really, really love Gary. I think he's a, a brilliant guy. Yeah. And he has a new book that I blurbed about, yeah. uh, not out yet on diabetes and all the, all the lies about diabetes. But the book, he's been very influential, as you know. And one of the things that he helped carry over the goal line and many others is this glycemic index. And that the real reason we're fat is because we eat too much carbs and that it raises our insulin level and it makes us hungry. Basically, that's the simple dumbed down version, right? And that he, he had been purporting that as the main driver of the obesity epidemic. You take issue with that. Uh, I, I would say, because you would say uh, 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 maybe not so fast that UPS are an important part of the story. And maybe it's not so simple as this glycemic index. Do I interpret that correctly? Yeah. So the sugar, the sugar insulin debate is a long and exhausting one. And Gary, I would say, I mean, he's a he's a physicist by training and an incredible brain. And I think very few people have moved human nutrition further than Gary. Now, I would say the way he moved it is he got this incredible set of experiments funded undertaken by Kevin Hall that really showed that there doesn't seem to be a particularly large difference between um, fat-based diets or carb-based diets in terms of how they affect your overall energy expenditure. And to some extent, it's not very interesting when we're talking about life out in the real world, there's a lab question about whether or not the carbohydrate insulin mechanism is really what's going on. And I would side 
kind of, I guess, with with Kevin Hall on that and said, I don't think the way you construct your diet in terms of its nutrients massively affects energy expenditure. But in a sense, it's a bit moot because out in the real world, very few people are able to eat these ketogenic diets and stay on them. Some some people are. I mean, a lot of people on the Internet are. But kind of out, out in real life, we eat the food we're we're faced with. The the. So I think sugar is very harmful in two ways. It rots teeth. And if you add sugar to food, you eat more of the food. And you can do this with any child at breakfast. You can give them a bowl of plain porridge. They won't eat much of it. You put two spoonfuls of sugar on it. They eat masses. Now, you haven't given them many more calories in terms of the sugar, but you've made something very appetite stimulating. So I think the crucial thing about all the research on UPF is it's all made adjustments for fat, salt, sugar, and fiber. The, the big question for the epidemiologists has been, are we sure this isn't just kind of junk food that's high in fat, high in salt, high in sugar, and that's eaten by people who um, you know, live in terrible housing and drink lots of alcohol and smoke lots? So the epidemiologists are very skillful at controlling for that. You can't control for everything. But what's consistent over all of the hundreds of prospective trials that we now have is, is that when you adjust for salt, fat, sugar, and fiber, not only does the effect remain in terms of statistical significance, it remains the same in terms of magnitude as well. And that backs up Kevin Hall's data where he had two, he put, he randomized people to two um, equal diets nutritionally, same salt, fat, sugar, fiber, same deliciousness, people enjoyed the food the same amount, um, both groups had as much ca many calories as they could possibly eat, way more. They had 5,000 calories a day. And yet the ones on the ultra-processed food lost weight, well, the one, sorry, on the unprocessed food lost weight, on the ultra-processed food gained weight. So I think what we may see is that when we go back and we redo some of the studies that link fat and sugar um, and perhaps maybe salt, although I think salt is particularly harmful in other ways, but when we do adjustments for ultra processing, we may see that the main driver of harm is when we encounter these molecules in formulations that we can't stop eating. So, so when we go and make the controls for ultra processing and we, we do the dietary analysis, we may see a dilution of the effect of, of fat and sugar. So the people that swear, and there'll be many of them that listen or watch this, or read this, they'll say, I, I, I went on a low carb diet and I lost all this weight. You would say, well, it wasn't just a low carb diet. It's, uh, there's a lot of other factors that come into play, including the, uh, the fact that a lot of the carbs that you were eating are loaded with UPFs. Well, I think that's a great question. I would have two answers for those people. I'd say, well, that's great. And we know that many people, if you eat any restrictive diet, so if you eat a low fat diet, a low carb diet, if you eat a diet based on avocados and breakfast cereal, many people will lose weight for some months. Um, and particularly if you cut carbs out, food becomes much less palatable. Um, you know, spaghetti bolognese is a lot less edible without the spaghetti. So we know that extreme keto diets, very low carb diets, they definitely work and they do help people lose weight. I don't think there's very good evidence that that's because of insulin suppression. I think it's because people eat fewer calories because um, carbs make food delicious and we just eat less of it. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and it may also be that when you cut out carbs, when you go on these diets, often you do switch away from 
um, industrially produced food that's very delicious, and you switch into you know you become more conscious in other ways. So yeah, no, I, I think definitely low carb diets help people lose weight. I'm not arguing that. I just I don't think it's to do with insulin, and I'm not sure they are. There's much evidence they're more effective than low fat diets, and there's very little evidence that anyone is any good at sticking to any diet for any period of time. Is that is that fair? I mean, that's, I'm in your area now. Yeah, no, no, that's a great explanation. Uh, you know, a calorie is a calorie and that the diet, when you restrict it, um, it's going to have an effect, at least on a short-term basis, that is usually unsustainable over longer periods. I mean, this is, I think, a, a shakeup. These are things in the book. While you were directed towards the... Uh, the section of ultra processed food and how we are being um, our health is being adversely affected you along the way you take on a lot of these issues that people still they are widely accepted and that's what i especially enjoyed about the book is learning about your challenge of of dogma you know these this is some people when they watch this or listen to this they're gonna say no no that can't be and again you're systematic. You quote the biologic plausibility studies. You quote randomized studies done by the likes of Kevin Hall. Well, let's talk about him in a, in a moment. And then you get all these epidemiologic studies coming out everywhere. I mean, you, the hunt that you did on the research for this to find all these citations and review all of them in itself was a was a tour de force. But it's, whenever you open your mouth about food, you start an argument and. About 50% of the argument is the food industry who want the food industry wants us to believe the problem is with the nutrients because that's the thing they can fool around with. Yeah. If sugar is the problem, they can take it out and put in the sweetness. If fat's the problem, they can put in xanthan gum and guar gum and modified maize starch and carrageenan. You know, if salt's the problem, they'll put, put in potassium chloride. There's all kinds of stuff they can fool around with. They've been doing it since the early 80s and it hasn't worked. <clears throat> so the book is written in a kind of almost legalistic way. I mean, it has to be a legalistic. Way. I mean, the lawyer, the three teams of lawyers poured off the whole thing. But I also know, I know I'm going to, I want people like you to read it. And I know it has to withstand your scrutiny. <clears throat> it, it certainly has. I mean, I, what I love too, is that in the near one of the last chapters, you say, well, how are we going to get this on track? And you say the medical community, you know, we as Physicians caring for patients should be emphasizing this in our communication to patients. And I think that is one way, a form of activism, uh, to take this on it, you know, hopefully get it on track because it's largely been ignored. I mean, I think that the problem is because the food labels, even though people look at them, they don't read the fine print. That's where it shows up, if at all. And they're not familiar with the data incriminating all these things that shouldn't be in the food right? That are making it addictive and dangerous and whatnot. Um, yeah, I, I, I have to say, um, you, you have done a masterful job in reshaping my mind, which doesn't happen often when I read a book, I have to say, you know, it's just because um, what I admire is the depth of the citations, you know, backing it up. You're not just, uh, you know, you're not a conspiracy theorist against the food industry. And I think you would be the first one to admit that some people will say food science with uh, air quotes, because where's the science, right? That, you know, a lot of the studies are garbage studies, you know, that are really and, Right. And the best science is done 
in industrial labs and we don't have too much access to it. I mean, I spoke, the most interesting community of people I spoke to for the book were people in the industry. They were all lovely. Many of them wouldn't be quoted, but they would explain how it was all done. And behind closed doors, they all say, we know what we're doing. We know we are making addictive products. We've also got whistleblowers and lots of people who have worked for industry. And people like Dana Small at Yale um, did lots of Pepsi-funded research on the sweeteners. And when she <laughs> published it all and said, look, I'm a bit worried about this, then Pepsi obviously stopped funding her. So, yeah, I'm not a conspiracist. And I'm also trying to make an argument. I'm not a neo-Marxist. I'm not an anti-capitalist. We, we can imagine. Part of the issue is in the States and in the UK, you know, you are paying, you are subsidizing the production of this food. And there is a whole industry and a whole set of businesses of people who make real food, um, who could produce real food at a much more affordable cost. But instead, what we do is we subsidize a very small number of agribusinesses to produce these commodity crops at the expense of the environment and our health. And then we, we pay less for the food at in the shop but we pay with our health insurance premiums and we pay with our environmental cost and we pay with our, our bodies as well. So this isn't really cheap food. Yeah, well, that brings me to, you know, exacerbating pre-existing inequities, which are, are far worse here in the U.S. than, than out many other countries, including yours. But um, the fact that there's these food deserts all over the place, that the people can't get to, you know, what, what I mean, the classification that a lot of people in the medical community are not familiar with, um, the uh, NOVA classification, the NOVA 1, the unprocessed or minimally processed food, as opposed to what your book centered on, the NOVA 4, ultra processed food. But, you know, people um, in these desert food deserts can't get to the unprocessed NOVA 1 foods. And how can we get this? write it because this is part of the problem is they're the ones at high risk and now they're 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 their food that they're taking in is just making that even worse i guess in my hierarchy of solutions i have two things that need to be done before everything else i believe that poverty is a political choice there is huge amounts of money in both our countries and people, children born into any household should be able to eat excellent, affordable food. So the number one thing is you have to fight poverty. That You don't need much redistribution. This isn't communism. It's not creeping socialism. It's just saying we, we could take a little bit of money out of the wealthiest corporations and individuals and lift a few people out of poverty. What we also know is when we do that, it's incredibly cheap. So what's expensive is having an underclass of poor, unhealthy people in your society. So if you are a, a hawkish right-wing nationalist who wants a good football team and a good military um, and low taxes, then for goodness sake, don't have poor people living with terrible health problems. It's ridiculously expensive. This, my interest is in social justice, I suppose, and I'm probably... Uh, I don't like to talk about my politics, but but I'm a, I'm a doctor working for the National Health Service. I treat patients with infections. It you know so so number one is poverty. The second thing you have to interrupt is the conflicts of interest. So in the UK, we had some headlines come out uh, a couple of weeks ago. All the major papers um, published these headlines where uh, five. Uh, scientists had, had got together from something called the Science Media Center and said, look, ultra processed foods are fine, actually. And in fact, some of them are really healthy. You should eat brown bread and 
all this hysteria is nonsense. Now, when you looked at the five scientists, one of them had been the senior scientist at Nestle for 15 years. One of them was on the board of a multi-billion pound ultra-processed food company. One of them had done research for the others. And the institution, the Science Media Center, very credible sounding, very, very popular in the UK with journalists. They always release press briefings. They're incredibly helpful. That The Science Media Center is itself funded by Procter & Gamble, who make Pringles, Nestle, who make Kit Kats, and a consortium including Cargill and Coca-Cola. So none of the papers reported this, apart from The, the Guardian did then uh, run a, a brilliant story on the conflict. It ha we have to see industry money as dirty. No one would accept the British Lung Foundation and their spokespeople taking money from Philip Morris and British American Tobacco. We would all go, that's, that's crazy. Well, the food industry are now doing this incredibly brilliant thing, uh, which is exactly what the tobacco industry did, where they're, they're doing this manufacturing doubt. So a lot of my, my time is spent trying to very carefully frame arguments in a way that is shored up against anyone thinking I'm trying to ban anything or take their fun away. I love it. Um, have I missed anything that I should have asked you about? Um, because we, we've covered a lot of ground and I, I can't do justice to this book because it's, it's a phenomenal book. And I, I hope that the, the people that are not just the, those who are worried about their own nutrition, but those who, uh, their loved ones, their patients, whatever, will get into this because uh, you've got a lot of work here uh, to offer, you know, to get people up to speed, educated about the problem. But is there anything else you can think of that you want to highlight? I think the the only thing I try and underline, and you're, you're always very skillful at this, but it's that I think one of the main harms for people who live with obesity and who live with diet-related disease is stigma, particularly from our profession. We treat patients who live with obesity terribly badly. And the book, I hope, if it does nothing else, should try and show to any physician who reads it or any parent that when someone is living with any diet-related disease, it really is not them. It is the food. We are, we are saturated in products that we have good evidence are addictive. Um, they are all around us. And at the moment, our patients who are trying to lose weight. It's like them trying to quit smoking in the 1960s. You know, you and I would be doing this interview, smoking away, you know, the clouds of smoke everywhere. My kids would be smoking. So that's the environment we're in. And I think if we can, if we can give people a break and try and try and not judge them and try and critique the system, that is, that is the outcome that we need. Yeah. And here we are, we've got the glip one drugs like uh, Munjaro and we have Govi chasing the, uh, the epidemic and so we're using drugs injectable drugs right now to chase something that uh, is partly food mediated i, I would say and the other i mean thing the, the thing about those drugs that's so interesting is if you take the drug and you don't gain weight but you continue eating the foods that drive other diseases you know the the effects where ultra processed food seems to be associated with cancer all-cause mortality dementia anxiety depression cardiometabolic disease that's when you adjust for obesity. So you don't have to gain the weight to have those effects. It's not that those things are caused by the weight gain. They are independently caused. And so you can be taking your Wigovi um, and you'll still have an elevated risk of cancer unless you change your diet. So these drugs are not going to get us out of the hole. They're going to be wonderful for some, pe for some people who need to lose weight, you know, but they're terribly expensive and they should not let the government off the hook of making sure that good food is available. 
Yeah. And then the other thing I wonder about, you know, I, as you know, I work a lot in the AI space and I'm thinking these companies are going to increasingly use AI to make their addiction levels even higher um, because, you know, this is the way to understand how the, the, the proteins of the 3D structures will bind better to parts of the our receptors in our brain and whatnot. I mean, I'm worried that this could even get worse from these uh, companies. It will definitely get worse. So, I mean, the point you make is is really important. At the moment, when we think about food addiction, and there was a this brilliant paper was published the other day by uh, Gearhart and, and De Felice Antonio, two wonderful scientists, and they were drawing together a lot of different research showing that the food is addictive, when, whether you're scanning people or gathering psychiatric data. Um, at the moment, the way we think about addiction is kind of these sugar-fat ratios, but clearly it's so much more complex that when we add flavor, acid, bitterness, sourness, um, all of these molecules, plus as exactly as you say, the food matrix, the texture, the smoothness, the fattiness, the packaging, the font, the animal that's there, the colors, all of it contributes to a sort of gestalt around each product that drives addiction. So yes, there is no question that the academic community has a very primitive understanding of how this food is driving excess consumption. I suspect the companies know more, but mainly they've just been iterating it for decades. I mean, the one, all the companies said the sort of same thing to me. When they test food, they put it through a, a tasting panel. And one of the things they measure is how much do people eat and how quickly do they eat it? And if you've got two boxes of cereal, the one that people eat the quickest and the fastest is the one that goes on the shelf. And they've been doing this, you know, you, you, you ate the same, you and I ate the same cereals as, as children, as my, my kids do. Um, they've been perfecting them for, you know, five decades. And so it's not surprising that every single aspect of those cereals or the breads or the spreads, it's all dialed up to 11, whether it's the emulsifier, you know, which one do you use? How much salt, the smoothness, glucose syrup, is it too sweet? A little bit more fructose? You know, every our understanding is so primitive. Well, your uh, dissection of it is as comprehensive as I could ever imagine. You know, from the speed that we eat to the texture and the softness and all the other things you just mentioned. So, I want to congratulate you. This is, as I said at the uh, top, a masterpiece, and I, um, I'm really, I, we should be indebted to you for pulling it all together. And wow. I look forward to further discussions with you because. Every time I eat now, I'm going to be thinking of you. <laughs> I love it. I mean, Eric, I cannot tell you, you know, I'm a long-time admirer, so it is – anyway, I'm not going to fanboy too much, but it, it, I can't tell you I'm, 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 I'm deeply touched and, and very moved, and so I, I really appreciate you saying that. Well, on a, for you to volunteer to help on a Friday night late in the UK to do this, I'm indebted as well. So thanks so much, Chris. I look forward to talking to you much more in the future and uh, really appreciate your joining today. I hope we'll speak again.